Was God's discipline of Ananias and Sapphira fair? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me as always is Brian Dembozik. So Brian, today we are jumping back into Acts. So over the next few weeks, we are kind of doing this weaving in and out as we deep dive into particular individuals um, who come up throughout the narrative of Acts. That's going to continue on for for a little while actually but uh but it's a good but it's a good way to help connect see people connect dots between the epistles and the book of acts as well because they run um they run together exactly no and we there is a way you could do in theory a chronology you could when later in acts especially you can get some of the early like james's writing but um some of Paul's writings, but it just, we, we just determined it's just better to jump into letters written by the people we're looking at. So the chronology, uh, not following as much when we jump to the epistles, but more of kind of the themes and ideas. Yeah. Um, but anyway, anyway, we're, yeah, we're back in Acts and it's, uh, we're going to be looking at the end of Acts four. We're going to be picking up actually in verse 32, going into f- chapter five, verse 11, mm-hmm. mostly focusing on this account of Ananias and Sapphira, but in order to understand Ananias and Sapphira, you really have to start with four because you have to see Barnabas. He's introduced. Um, they're meant to be studied together. This is one of those places, again, where whoever decided where to make the chapter breaks, I'm, I'm not a fan of this one. I don't think chapter five should begin where it begins, but mm-hmm. they're smarter than I am, so I'm sure they had a really good reason for doing it this way. Um, <laughs> or they walked away for lunch, came back and said, all right, let's just start a new chapter. I don't know. But anyway, this is this is early in the book of Acts still. Um, Peter is still the primary leader. James is going to become a leader pretty soon after this, but it's still Peter. We're going to see in this, this story, Peter is acting as a leader. Um, and of course, after James, then they're both going to give way, and Paul will be kind of become the main central person throughout the book of Acts, uh, the back half of it at least. So still early on. Because we've got a, you know, we've got a sizable but but still relatively bite-sized passage uh, here. We're gonna we're gonna kick this off by actually reading it for you. So this is Acts four thirty-two through five eleven. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who had who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the, the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from, uh, from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a, fi- a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it all at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it sold, wasn't it your it at your disposal? Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead and a great fear came up on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the piece, the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. So, this is there a There you go. <laughs> exactly. And this is, you know, that initial question is, we're going to get to it in, in a couple of minutes, but... Man, it when you read this for the first time, it something doesn't seem right. It feels off. Yeah. Um, that Ananias and Fire both drop down dead on the spot, and you're like, man, but we're gonna get to it. Um, the the big answer to the question, of course, judgment was fair. God is just, he is fair. Of mm-hmm. course it is. It's the challenge is us to understand how that is. Yes. But I think the first question we come across is is another big one. We see it in verse 32, all the way back in chapter four, verse 32. Mm-hmm. We read of the church um, having all things in common. Um, you know, no one had a possession of his own. Is this telling us that the early church was socialist? Was it a, a communist, socialist, whatever you want to kind of, however you want to parse that? I know they're different, but um, is, is that what we're reading here, that, that nobody owned their own property? It all belonged to the church. No. <laughs> no, that is not what it's saying here. Um, this and again, I've heard this, Aaron. I don't know about you, but I've heard mm-hmm. this um, used as a defense of that kind of political um, uh, uh, ideology. Yeah, and that is not what's going on here. Um, if you're going to defend that political ideology, you can do it. Just do it from some different way. Um, it's not here. What we see here is that this is a summary, one of several different summaries in the Book of Acts where we're seeing how wonderfully united the church was, how much they cared about one another, how they were truly living out the gospel with one another. But look at verse 34. It clarifies that people still own property. Mm -hmm. Um, They just viewed their property with open hands. And so what we see here is actually them living with God-glorifying generosity, um, a desire to help one another, and again, this is, it's important to remember what's going to be happening soon after this. They're going to be persecuted for their faith. And already here, it's starting somewhat from the Jews. And so part of that persecution could have been their limited participation in commerce. Um, so I've, I've heard some that the early Christians may not have had it easy to sell goods and so forth. They may have been rejected. I'm not buying your stuff. You're one of those people who believe that there's more than one God. You believe Jesus is God. I'm not... There was this this rejection, and so it probably had immediate financial impact on the early church, which is why they needed desperately to rely on one another um, mm-hmm. and, and take care of one another. So the idea here is not that everybody just brought everything in. Here it is. Here's everything. It belongs to the church. It's, no, I'm holding it loosely, and it's still mine, 
But if I see a need and if I can help it, I'm quickly and eagerly going to step forward and do what it takes. So it's beautiful here, what we see. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this this really speaks to the changed heart of yeah. of the people and and really a fulfillment. And this is this is very important. Is so much of what we see in the early church is intent, uh, especially pre the the uh, greater persecution that um, that Paul that was initially the leader of um, that that dispersed the the Christians um, out into the Jew, into the Roman Empire um, what Luke was doing very intentionally here in his narrative was he was trying to show how the church was the fulfillment of all of the expectations that were on Israel yeah so this was so what they were doing here was the fulfillment of that and and was was an express a truer expression of what was already there. Um, because the because the Israelites were called to meet the needs of all who who were among them, and that in fact there should be no need among any of God's people. Yeah, um, and we do see that in the law, um, but we know that that did not ultimately that 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 did not ultimately happen, at least not in its fullness. Yeah, and so this is just one more one more little signpost here that it's like. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's been promised and following Jesus is the way to live in light of what God has commanded in the greatest fullness of that. Um, and that leads us into um, Barnabas appearing. And um, and so why is he mentioned here? Why does he show up in the story in verses 36 through uh, 37? Well, really, this is a, this is, um, a storytelling element here. And this is a reminder that um, Luke is actually a good storyteller. He's not just conveying information. Um, he's a good historian. He was a doctor on top of that uh, by trade. And he actually knew how to, how to spin a yarn in a truthful <laughs> sort of way. And that's uh, also important because what, when I say story, remember, story mean all, can also mean something that is true. Yes. <laughs> so, again, people... Don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> um, I feel like I have to caveat things a lot today. We do but, that a um, lot. What's that? That's kind of our thing anyway, caveat. That's true. That's true. It's our spiritual gift. But um, it's not on one of the lists because those lists aren't exhaustive. No, but um, <laughs> It's definitely our spiritual gift. Absolutely. Um, so but so why did why did Luke introduce Barnabas? Well, he does it at this point because he he wants people to start to get a sense of who this guy is. Um, it's entirely possible that some of the people who are reading Acts actually knew him already too, and so they wanted to see how far back his his credibility yeah. goes. It's like this, he's like one of the old school guys, um, and so he's come. Um, and for but for the rest of us. He plays a significant role in the story moving forward, even though he's not a large character in it by any means. Um, but the role that he plays is so, so important, yeah. um, especially as we see uh, see Paul's conversion and beyond. And so um, so that's one reason that he that he's introduced at this point. but um, also it seems to excuse me. So that's one reason, but 
also, um, it seems to be that, um, that he is showing up here in part because um, perhaps the gift that he made stood out as being um, even more generous than anything else that was going on. Um, and it also served as a, as a, as a really powerful contrast, this open handedness yeah. of Barnabas um, to what was going to happen with Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. And that takes us to them. And, and we, go into chapter five then, and we see verses one through four. I think the first question is, what did they do wrong? Because we have to be careful. The, the text actually doesn't tell us point blank. Um, mm-hmm. It really does a good job of, of giving us a clear implication of what they did. And, and that we see here is they, they lied. So what probably happened is, and this is where, again, you have to think back to Barnabas, so mm-hmm. Barnabas brings this gift, and, and if, if we're correct of reading the end of chapter 4 of him being notable in part maybe because his gift was sizable, then you can imagine the response, you know, the church. The church could have, in, in a good way, could have said, man, Barnabas, we, we just want to encourage you. You're the encourager. We want to encourage you. Man, we see what you did, and this was God's using you. What a, what a generous act of kindness. And probably got attention in some way, shape, or form. Now, we can, again, kind of safely presume from chapter 4 and the tenor there, and what we see about Barnabas later, that that probably was handled really well in a godly manner. But Ananias and Sapphira here, when we see them, it seems like they want that attention, but they're not willing to do what it takes to get that attention. So they seem to have this plan. What if we sell a piece of property of ours, and we'll bring part of the proceeds, enough where it's important and big and will draw attention, but not all of it because we want to keep some back for ourselves because we're not going to be really that generous. (laughs) And so they wanted the appearance of generosity without being truly generous. They wanted the credit for being generous without being truly generous. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like that's what they do. They come and they say, that's what Ananias, here's here's the X number of dollars. We sold a piece of land, and the assumption is it's all. We're bringing everything from that sale. We held nothing back. And you can kind of just, in your mind's eye, see them being like, all right, you know, y'all think I'm something, don't you? Come on, give mm-hmm. me some credit here. My back's waiting and ready for you to pat. Um, and so here, I'll th- start. Exactly. I'll start myself. Um, that is that is the notion here. So there's a a selfishness under undercurrent behind what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And it should be noted, and really, again, that it wouldn't have been wrong for them to only give him part. And, and that's so what I, Peter I, tells I, them. Yeah, exactly. They could have done that, and it would have yep. been fine. It's the, yep. it, it really comes down to that that heart issue that's going on there. Um, and so that leads into the question, into the big question, was God's discipline of these two fair? I mean, death seems kind of harsh here, especially with, uh, with them dropping down, yeah. dropping dead on the spot. I mean, I, I have not experienced that. And I will admit there have been times when I have not told the truth. Exactly. I've been selfish. I haven't dropped down dead. <laughs> right. But, and, and, and this is one of those, those, those pieces, uh, this, these moments that 
that makes it hard to square with um, not so much the picture of God that Scripture provides, but with our cultural picture of yeah. of God, particularly within uh, within the Western modern evangelical church. Um, we tend to we tend to shy away from God as having any of taking any sort of punitive action or judging at all. But um, or or if we do, it's for the serious things. Yeah, so the big the yeah, the big yeah. stuff that isn't the things that we do. Well and clearly here we see lying. Come on. They still brought a yeah. lot of money. And it's yeah. just a lie. We all yeah. lie at times. So yeah, we we categorize if we do, but you're right. I think there are some people who don't want to see God judging at all. Yeah. And so it's gentle. This is why we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and yeah. why we have a false distinction between the God, between God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament. Um, you know, treating, treating God in the Old Testament as wrathful and hot-tempered um, and God in the new being pretty chill and being yeah. your being your pal and possibly your boyfriend, but um, <laughs> you know this is uh, this is just where things go. But um, but this but what we see here is is that just as and you know we talked about this a little bit um, around Christmas time with John chapter one and this idea that uh, of um, the law coming through Moses and and grace coming through through Jesus that what we what we're what we see in the in the New Testament is this idea of escalation, that the the law itself wasn't was a gift of grace from God, and and um and the and the coming of Christ into the world as a human being to die for our sins was grace upon grace, um and so what we see so there is this escalation that happens, and we see this happen throughout the story of scripture as well, where, um, where, um, things like the good gets better and the bad gets worse. (laughs) And, um, and so there is this, there is this important turning point here that we're seeing that is don't mistake who God is. God is holy. God is, um, God cares about his church. God cares about his people. And his expectations have not gone away. And so this is at the start of that. And it had they had they gone unchecked, multiple things would have happened that would have eroded the foundation of the church. Um, so one, it would have um, it would have allowed for it would have given room for sin. Two, it would have given and not just their lying um, and um but also the the sin of partiality that there's this idea that um you should be applauded for how much you give and that is something that is absolutely forbidden um we are not to treat anyone as being greater or lesser yeah. than someone else especially not the rich i mean that's james right there yep. So God was acting swiftly to preserve the integrity of the early church in this moment in a similar way that he did during Achan's sin in Joshua, where God judged him and not just him, but his whole family at the start of the conquest because 
he violated God's express commands. He yeah. took things that, that were not intended to be taken. And he died for it because God was telling them, this is how I have told you to live. This is how I want you to live. And I am going to fiercely protect you as my people. Yeah, I think those, both of these, you know, keeping in mind um, what was at stake and just thinking about, man, at the start of this, uh, these people need to take this seriously because if, if they start, it's the old adage, you give somebody you know, an inch and they'll take a foot. Um, or you can translate that into centimeters and, and meters from your Canadian upbringing. Um, but it, it's the same kind of thinking. If, if, you know, the church would have run rampant with these issues that you mentioned, Joshua and the Israelites would have, and they ended up doing it later anyway, but they, they, they would have run a lot quicker. So it's God, it's hard to see this at first, but really, when you think about it, it's God's kindness to deal with this sternly, but appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes his church seriously. He takes his people seriously. So that, that takes us to one other question I think we, we have to kind of interact with before we move on, and that is in verse 11, we see that what happens results in great fear. Understandably, uh, think about the early church. Think about those around it. When word gets out, when either you saw this or when word gets out, it's it. I mean, it's hard for us. Can you imagine what it was like then? Um, and so, was this good or bad? This fear, and we have to recognize it's good. It's because what's in mind here is a reverent respect for God. Aaron, earlier you talked about how we kind of see God as the God of of wrath in the Old Testament and the God of love and kindness in the New. It's kind of like the firstborn son in the second. You know, a lot of times parents are accused of treating their firstborn child more um, strictly than the younger kids. And and so that Mm -hmm. secondborn, you know, or that firstborn looks and says, why are you, you know, you're so easy with, with this other brother and sister. You were so hard on me. A lot of people kind of have that view of God. He's stern at first, and then he kind of, eh, let me just relax a little bit. Um, And so sometimes we have this thinking that when we read fear of God in Scripture, we translate that in another way. We think, well, that just means reverence, respect. And it does to a degree. But we cannot, to a degree, we cannot strip out true fear from it. And not fear like, you know, fear of... uh, Trains. I've got a fear of trains, Aaron. I don't know if you know this. I I love trains, but I literally, whenever I cross railroad tracks driving, I get nervous <laughs> because That's it's like fascinating. Yeah, it's like what if the little guard barrier thing is broken and yeah. and it didn't register and this train comes and so I so I've my and my family they love me so much. Whenever we are driving, we have to cross railroad tracks. They're always like train because they love me that much. <laughs> so so it, you it's mean. Not, so you mean it it would be just as bad as if um say on our next road trip together when the world's not ending that um that I take every road that takes us across a, a train track. No, I would get out and walk at some point. Yeah, it would be bad. So but that's not the fear I have in mind or that we have in mind here in scripture. It's not that kind of well, that's an irrational fear, but it's not that kind of fear. Um it is not a terror of God in that regard, but it is this healthy reverence, but there is this, this notion of fear we cannot lose because God is holy. He is all powerful. Mm-hmm. He is not just our Abba daddy. He is creator God. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we can never lose sight of his power. And he is a God of judgment. Even his children, he disciplines, and that can be painful. So there's a weightiness to our relationship with him. There's a weightiness to how we live that needs to have this fear of God. And that's what we see here. We see his people and those outside who recognize God is serious. We need to take him seriously. We can love him and approach him with boldness, but at the same time, be serious. Boldness does not mean flippancy. Yeah. So we don't come lightly. We don't come you know, callously to our God. We come boldly, but we do so with mm-hmm. a weightiness and an understanding of who he is. So this is a good fear that yeah. all of us should have of our loving father, who is also creator God. Right. And it should be noted that that can be a very difficult thing for people, particularly people who um, have not seen a good example Mm. of what it means to have a healthy kind of fear, who have perhaps lived afraid of um, an irrationally angry parent. Um, And... And I say irrational, and I say parent as opposed to saying father, because it can happen with it both can, mothers yeah, and fathers yeah. too. Um, and so this is a very, this is a very difficult truth, um, and it's something that it can very easily, because of the parent, like the the parent language that Scripture uses about God, referring to Him as Father, um, we can take our human notions and our experiences and apply those to him and, and they don't fit. Yeah. Um, but that's hard for us to wrestle with. And, and so right away, before we even get into really how we would disciple, how we would work through this passage, discipling someone else, I think it is important to say, um, you know, one of the challenges that we have as disciple makers is to help people, see that difference that we don't have to be afraid of God the way that we would be afraid of an abusive parent. Um, that we can, that we can come to him, that there is, um, that, and that we don't, we don't seek to serve him out of a, out of a fear of even disappointing him. It's a, we want to do, we want to do what's right because we love him. And, um, and he celebrates that with us. Yeah. So, um, so that, like I said, kind of leads us in already into where, uh, into thinking about this from a discipleship perspective. But um, aside from that, what are some other things that uh, we should talk about here? I think another big one here is, of course, what our generosity looks like. Are we people who are giving and living joyfully and sacrificially? Um, are we like that? early church that's described in chapter four, do we really care about others? Or, especially for those of us here in, in the United States where we, we live, um, are, have we bought into that American dream at all costs? Um, you know, I, I think for many of us, this is, we have to wrestle with this. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is driving us? Is it really the American dream or is it the gospel? And while they don't necessarily have to be in opposition to one another, they can be in tension very easily. Um, and so we need to be a people who are willing to defer, let the, the American dream be subservient to the gospel no matter what, and live joyfully, live sacrificially. And again, let me just be clear, you can experience the American dream and still live joyfully and give sacrificially as we've commanded. You can be generous. 
um, but especially consumerism, this, this concept of, of our culture where um, companies and entertain or not entertainers, uh, uh, um, advertisers. So advertisers and companies will, will share with us this notion. They force this notion upon us that we can't really be content if we don't buy whatever they have offering next. Mm-hmm. Always keeping us in this posture of needing to need and, and literally fulfilling highs, momentary highs of buying things. There's a chemical reaction within us that literally pursues a high because we're buying something that we've wanted for a while. So enter, uh, consu- um, companies, they know this, they play on this. They know that what they tell us is going to satisfy us won't really satisfy us. They tell us that, but they're lying and they know it because they know they're going to need us to buy the next thing they have to offer. So for us, living in a, in a culture where that is being fed to us, it's easy for us to fall prey to that. And that just, that goes counter to generosity that God, God calls on us. So we need to help those that we're discipling to really understand the message, the lies that we're getting from our culture and the truth of the scripture and to pursue living with generosity. Yeah. Another, um, another thing that we need to, to help people walk through is, uh, really the question of if we're more concerned with how we appear to others or, or how we truly are. And so, do we want to follow in Ananias and Sapphira's footsteps? Um, or do we want to, or do we want to, um, and, you know, typically we, we so rarely ever use language that uh, is, is, you know, do you want to see yourself as this, this person or this person in scripture, <laughs> but this is a relevant place to. So, um, you know, do you want to follow in their footsteps or do you, or do you want to be someone more like Barnabas who, um, who is so radically open handed that it shocks people? Um, can we find more about, um, can we care more about our appearance? Um, or do we, uh, or do we care more about the appearance, um, than the substance of who we really are? Do we care about, um, being seen as being financially generous, um, versus actually being financially generous? Do we care more about being seen as a servant in the church versus just serving in the church. And that one's a, that one's a tricky one because what that can, what that looks like very often is, um, and it can be two people doing the exact same thing. Um, but it, and it's really a hard issue, but it's, do people like, do you make a big deal of it? Yeah. Like, do, does it, or do you just do it because it's what needs to be done and because you are available and willing um, or being family people um, or taking any other kind of good thing um, that, uh, that we can use as an opportunity to um, serve God and be generous and love others um, and twist it into this, this horrible, horrible thing um, that really is a, um, uh, really is, is just, it's just not good for our souls. Yeah. When we, when we go and we take them 
with an obviously impure motive. Understanding that, you know, none of us are ever perfectly pure in our, our motivations. Um, but there is a, but if there is a genuine desire to love and serve God and others through, um, through our time, talents, treasures, all that kind of stuff, um, and of course, as we, as we know our stuff <laughs> from our talk on stewardship, um, those are, um, that's what we need to be focused on. Yeah. And I think the last question that I, or the last takeaway rather that I see here for us as we're helping disciple others is this question of how seriously do we take sin? Even the sins that we deem as being small. And again, it takes us back to our conversation here of, you know, what did, what did Annas and Sapphire do? They, well, they lied. Okay. That's bad. We don't want to lie, but still, does it really warrant death? And I think part of what we have to remember is sanctification is us being made more aware of our sin, hating it and working to kill it through the power of the, of the Holy Spirit. And that's all of our sin. Even this, what we, again, what we deem the smallest of sins should be things that we say, no, I don't want anything, any part of this because any of it dishonors God. And so if we're making excuses of sin or we're ranking them, categorizing them in one way, shape, or form, it, it really can be evidence that we have plenty of room to grow in our sanctification because, again, we're not at the point where we see sin for what it really is and we're not hating it as we should. Um, so, yeah, this is a great takeaway for us to consider and help those we're discipling consider this as we all strive together to grow in our hatred of sin and rejection of it, big, small, or whatever. And that is a uh, good place for us to wrap up our conversation. And uh, so thank you, Brian, for chatting today. And thanks all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.